just I'd like to remind us that all these, a little louder, that all of these words we offer you, um, first of all, just remembering, they're all in service of helping us wake up from the not seeing clearly. We don't know we're not seeing clearly. We see the way we see, we understand life the way we understand it, but we think that's the way it is. And we don't see basically what we don't see. We're like fish and they don't know they're in the ocean. We're trying in, in our various ways, always, to um, encourage you, us, to question the way we think it is because the way we think of it is not as reliable as we assume. So it's all in service of questioning and seeing ever more truly and clearly for yourselves. Usually, um, my focus in Dharma practice, not about my focus, but my way of sharing um, I often share about um, the heart and about joy. I think that's just a lot of how I live. However, this year I happen to have had a year that was not full of joy. And so um, the stuff I want to share is, of course, what's up for me and what's been going on for me in my life and what, how the Dharma is so relevant and helpful to all of us, whatever's happening, whatever's happening. But um, tonight I want to talk about more about how it's really helpful when things aren't so fun. So I'm sort of carrying on a little bit from both Yanai and, uh, and what Rodney was saying to begin with. That story, you know, the beginning of uh, Rodney's describing our evolutionary process of human beings and how it was really the beginning of um, once we discovered agriculture as a species the whole thing of planning came into place and how we began to believe, and it was true, it's true, that if we plan and we sow enough grain deliberately to overcome future hunger, we'll be better off. And the ability to actually take some control and charge about uh, our circumstances was absolutely amazing in the beginning of all of the future civilization that came, leaving us time and space to develop speech and, and other skills and so on and so on. So our capacity, which we have been building on ever since and rely on so heavily, um, is this capacity to control, moderate, help our circumstances to a considerable degree. That's what sets us apart from all other creatures in this realm anyway. And we do it with unbelievable vigor and with complete uh, faith. In other words, we have invested in this ability to control the outcome. And, uh, and we do this so totally. Unfortunately for us, partly, I mean, it's worked pretty well. We're overrunning the place. Um, but unfortunately, it's a limited strategy. But we can't see its limits. The fact is that um, we actually aren't God. And even though we try so hard to uh, control, make things nice and work, there are all these other things that we can't seem to master. So now we come to uh, the Buddha. And the story at the very beginning of the Buddha, the Buddha's life before he was a Buddha, and how he grew up in a apparently luxury, relative luxury for his time. Um, and many of you know how he was um, very protected. And he was given three palaces, one for each season, and surrounded by beautiful, servants and, and dancing girls and so on and so forth, given all the best food available for anyone of his era and so on, protected from the ugliness and from the difficulty. Deliberately, it is said, so that his father would 
You know, so he wouldn't be triggered into deep existential questioning. So he would be content with his lot and carry on and be a great leader, king. And uh, of course, it's all very s symbolic, the, you know, these myths and stories. And so the symbol is that he was happy and fine and content in his very protected, narrow, limited view of things. But what happened because of his intelligence and our great good fortune is that he stepped outside of this protective world and he saw a few things which shook him to the core. And he saw the heavenly messengers, the first one being he saw somebody who was sick. And it, it's said that he never saw sickness before this. He was protected from it, so it really shook him up. Like, what's that? It was horrifying and sobering. And that it wasn't just out there, it was also possibly going to happen to him. He had a body too. The same with old age. The same he saw a corpse, several days, a corpse in the heat of that land, bloated and already disintegrating, and uh, was very upsetting. The, the symbol, the symbology, of course, is that um, he could be God in his little palace, all right, you know, and he could control, you know, or they could control for him that there were no dead flowers in the morning because the dead heads had been picked off and so on and so forth. And if somebody got ill, they were removed from the retinue of servants and replaced by a healthy one. And, and we can do that to some degree, but in the bigger picture, we can't. And he then stepped outside of the controlled environment to see the bigger picture. And so, of course, for us, the same thing. We use our strategy that we've been doing all these thousands of years to rearrange our world to suit us, but it's limited because all these things happen beyond our control. And so we, but then we have no other strategy to deal with the beyond. So we just keep trying to apply the same old strategy to stuff that it actually doesn't work for. And so that now we're in trouble. And the Buddha gave us this teaching, so extraordinary. He turned that strategy <coughs> on its head and he said, that's too limited. That can't actually deeply bring you the comfort that you think you're, you're seeking, that a world is seeking, because it's too limited. It's actually silly to think that you can fend off old age, sickness, death, loss, grief, and all of the, the things that we want to fend off and keep to ourselves the things that we want because they disintegrate, they change, and so on. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty, arrogant and pretty silly of us to believe in this strategy when it, is only, it can only possibly work in an limited way, limited field. So he said, instead of doing it that way, the way we've always done it, I have a suggestion. Instead of us trying to make it suit us, why don't we learn to accommodate to it? The stuff we can't make suit us, those big things, those things outside the palace. Don't keep trying, because you can't. Instead, learn this other radical approach. Learn to have a relationship with them, not a mastery of them. Don't try and do something to these other bigger things. Learn to be with them. It's brilliant. Why didn't we think of that beforehand? We didn't think of it because we were doing so well with controlling. We did very well. We stopped ourselves from hunger. We were able to you know, move to different locations and avoid things. It was, it's a very good strategy. It's just not good enough for everything. So it's not bad what we do. But the thing that's kind of ironic is that this practice that the Buddha teaches and his teachings and his words, they were all about helping us, um, helping us. They weren't like, this is dogma, these are facts, this is, this is how it is. They were all pres prescriptions for health. He called himself the doctor many times. You know, you're ill, there's a certain disease you have, you have a limited strategy to deal with things in your life, and so I can actually help you if you do, if you take these teachings as a medicine and apply them, so it's practical. It's not factual, it's not descriptive.
So the way we've done it and believe in so completely is this um, attempting to manipulate, attempting to hang on and gather the, the stuff we like, this comfort, to make ourselves feel comfortable, of course, and to um, either avoid, get rid of, or get angry at when we can't get rid of the things that we don't want, and to completely tune out the rest of it. If it doesn't actually impact me in either a pleasant or unpleasant way, it basically doesn't count. Very much, I'm the center of the universe. Of course, what really goes on in, in life is, uh, as the Buddha described them, these eight vicissitudes, eight vicissitudes, four pairs of opposites, <coughs> pleasure and pain. Many of you know these. Gain and loss, coming and going, praise and blame, and fame and ill repute criticism in a public way. Now we know this with our minds. We hear these words and it makes sense and we nod. We go, yep, that's right. Life is like that. It's pleasant and it's unpleasant. But when you look at yourself and how you live and you look closely, you'll see, and we all see, and this is what we're doing here, is looking closely and seeing at ourselves, that we don't really believe that. If we really believe that things are pleasant and then they're unpleasant, and that that's absolutely the way it is, we wouldn't try and change it so vehemently. We would be able to say, oh, this is what it's like. But our strategy up until our beginning training, it, it isn't a strategy of acceptance. It's a strategy of controlling. And it, that's why it's so radical of the Buddha. And it's why it's radical for us and difficult for us to do, because it's a, a completely different relationship. It's not a relationship of dominance. It's a relationship of accommodation. And because we've invested in the other so heavily for so long, generation after generation, it takes some training. And that's why we have to be patient about this and why it's a process. You can hear the words. You hear the words. You read the words. We read the words. But we don't live as though we actually understood it. That's because we are programmed. It's because we are, um, we're not in control of ourselves, <laughs> basically. We are products of our environment. We're the results of, of our whole life, of every event that's happened. We aren't, we aren't run by our will. If we were, we would be fabulous, wouldn't we? <laughs> We'd be perfect. You would never lose it. We would be the most generous, happy, easygoing, spacious people. Because we, we know. We hear words. It makes sense. We love it. We want it. But we're actually um, conditioned. We're the results of so much input and the results of so much habitual perception and understanding. And we keep <coughs> habitually trying to control everything. And the thing is, we can control so much of it that it's very convincing. It's hard to believe that we can't control it all. Of course we can't. So we really do, and look at yourself, see if and everything that we say and everything I say to you, don't believe me. See if this is true for you though. Like, think about it, ponder, question. Do we not think that when things are going well, that that's how it's supposed to be? And when they're not, there's something, somebody's made a mistake somewhere. <laughs> like, uh-oh, we've gone off the track or something. We believe, we have this gold standard, this kind of perfection. We're supposed to be healthy, we're supposed to be fit, we're supposed to be young, we're supposed to be wise, we're supposed to be content. We're not supposed to be depressed, we're not supposed to be aggressive, we're not, it's like wrong. It's a mistake. That is such a judgment. And that means that we're up against half of our life. We're in contention. That's why we, we are so tired and we, we get so depressed, because we're struggling against reality so much. But we know also to be miserable, to be depressed, to be angry, to be mean, 
and grouchy isn't, isn't free either. We're not asking ourselves to be free to be miserable and bitchy. That's actually not liberation either. So how do we deal with when we think it's wrong? And how does this practice actually work? <laughs> And the reason this is up for me, just to let you know, is um, as I've had a difficult period in my life, two individuals in my life, very close members of my family, completely separate from each other, I have been having and continue to have great difficulty, which has involved me to a considerable degree. And what's been very humbling is that I know about the eight vicissitudes but I really got to see through this year just how much I invested in attempting to make it right. It isn't right. They, both of them in different ways, are not okay. And their circumstances are not okay. And try as I have been, it still isn't okay <laughs> because it's way bigger than I can make it be okay. And that I have really seen again and again how caring is one thing, helping is one thing, being compassionate, being generous is great. But underneath it, very often, and see for yourself how true this is, there is an aversion to it being not okay, fueling so much of the energy that I've been putting out this year. It hasn't just been because I care and I'm, and I'm kind and generous. It's because actually I don't like it that way. And I want it to be better. I want them to be happier. There is in there an agenda. What happens with our practice, and it's an endless, always deepening exploration that we're doing as we practice, is we understand and then we see, I've understood it, but somewhere deeper, I didn't understand it yet. I didn't really get it. We hear the words, we understand the words, but that's the beginning. And so we apply and we explore and we say, is this true? Is this so? What's happening here? And uh, I usually take a retreat period in November every year. And in this November, I was able to really explore and be with how difficult things are in these particular circumstances, and how um, busily I have been attempting to resist it by fixing and not accommodating as much as I could have been. And I have learned, even just recently, such a, I have grown in my capacity to be okay with what's not okay that it isn't quite such the mistake that we think it is. It's been quite humbling and quite exquisite, but it's been very painful because I've had to be with this unpleasantness, these various aspects, loss and grief and remorse and blame and all, all, you know the usual, <laughs> the usual stuff that we have to deal with. So how does this Dharma practice work in allowing us to accommodate to the things that we're wired, we're absolutely wired and conditioned to uh, try and control? One of the very first things that, and it's radical, is that what's right away radical, see how my hand, it changes from this to this. This is one way, this is the other way. The way we, and the Buddha called us uninstructed worldlings, the way we go through our dominance behavior, strategizing to fix and rearrange, is we focus our attention on the, the situation, as though it's outside of us. And that, we, we kind of define our life by what's happening, the people, what they're saying, the, ex the events, the experiences. That's where we look, and that's where we find our happiness or unhappiness. Number one radical shift of the Buddha is, don't look at that stuff. There's always stuff. 
the eight versions of the stuff, not just the four, which are the right ones and the four, which are the wrong ones, but actually all the eight, they're all how it is. They're always going to be coming and going pleasant and unpleasant, painful and not painful. Look at how you're relating to them. But we, we just can't do that just by telling ourselves because we're so habituated on looking at this and looking at that and describing this and being concerned with that. And even if it's not the other person, it's, it's the aspects of myself. We, it's the facts. We focus on the objects. We focus on the solid things. Even the, the less solid and more subtle things like, um, let's say, I'll use a thing for mine, um, frustration was a thing that I was dealing with enormously. Because when you really want to fix something and it doesn't get fixed, you get frustrated, right? And so let's say frustration. Even frustration, which is in me, I would think I would, we do, notice frustration and then not like it. The practice is to keep turning back to see how am I relating to this and how am I relating to this. So here's something that I'd like to fix. Here's a problem. I'm relating to it actually with aversion. I don't like it. That's why I'm wanting to fix it. So then I try and fix it, and then that works, and then I feel satisfied, or that doesn't work, and I feel dissatisfied. I keep looking at the problem, seeing has it gone away yet? Oh, there's another one. Now I've got to deal with that one. Oh my god, now here's another one. Endless. I'm exhausted. All these things I've got to fix. Instead, turning and seeing I have the capacity to deal with this. This is something that can be handled. Oh, here's some frustration. Can I be frustrated? Am I allowed to be a frustrated Dharma teacher? I can, I can be interested in how I am with, this, even with my own frustration. But if I focus on the frustration, I'll just get frustrated. And I can easily then criticize myself for getting, I shouldn't get frustrated. I know better than that. We, when we're looking at the objects of our experience, we tend to then react, as Jana was saying last night. We like them or we don't like them. We judge them in some way. Instead of looking at the objects that are happening, looking at in every moment, how is this? How am I here with this? We're actually, what we're looking at is my capacity to accommodate it rather than it. It's radical. We haven't done that. We've always focused on the it and defined ourselves by that. Another reason why it's hard to do this and it's sort of radical is because we've always done it the way we've always done it, rearranging the its, fixing, getting rid of, and all of that, we don't actually believe this other way <laughs> because we haven't done it very much and so we haven't tried it out and therefore it hasn't proved itself so we don't have much confidence in this radical way. We have plenty of confidence in that way because it works pretty well even though it's limited. And so we don't trust ourselves to not do that. So we find ourselves in a circumstance that's challenging, let's say, and our knee-jerk response is to do it the old way oh no, I shouldn't be feeling this. How can I not feel this? How can I fix it? How can I feel better? Do a little matter and then it'll all go away. <laughs> That's the same old strategy. We don't believe that if I don't do that and I just am still, that that's a solution? <laughs> that will work? We don't trust through lack of experience. It's not Nothing to criticize that we don't trust, but we don't trust. We don't have confidence. The more we learn the skills that are taught through meditation, the more they grow in us, the more we trust them. Because we do see actually it is workable. It is helpful. But we have to actually do it, even though we, especially initially, think, well, I don't know, that sounds kind of odd, but... And then we, even when we deliberately try, the mind doesn't respond very well. We'll say, I'm just going to be here with this sore knee. Okay, I'll just be with the sore knee. Oh, no, you won't. <laughs> the mind won't even do it when we want it to do it, of course. So we have to be so patient in training it. No, just, just be with this.
Another thing is that um, it's very vulnerable to not be in control. The way we've always done it, we have this sense of, of power. I can fix this. I can make this better if I do it like this. And even if I don't do it like this, but if I try and figure out how to do it, then it'll be okay. So we're busily trying to, you know, what should I do? And we, you, you know, you ask. We always ask. You know, people who we think are wiser than us. What, you know, what? How, help me do it better. I had an image in uh, in my retreat recently of myself as a kid running along through my life, sort of skimming along the surface, being suspended by uh, a dozen brightly filled helium colorful balloons, all of which had some strategy of fixing. And during the course of this year, but particularly the course of the retreat where I was reflecting on this year, I had to keep letting go of these balloons because I had to be honest about the fact that this kind of fixing didn't actually fix it, and this one didn't, and this one didn't. And we feel some kind of power when we have these, these skills that we think will work, which do work a lot, but not enough, which don't work with the big things, don't work. People die. You can't stop it, the big things. So there's power and confidence that comes from being in control, we think. And so, of course, we don't want to admit that we're not in control. Now, that's scary, vulnerable. So that's why it's another it's radical to look at that, that you're actually not in control. We don't like that. We're not used to it. Another reason why it's difficult to do is that all these strategies and figuring out and um, explanations and blamings and everything that's going on in your mind that you're watching here, busily doing. We're busy doing it so much of the time. When we don't do that, it's sort of entertaining. And when we don't do that, and we drop all that kind of extra papuncture, all that activity, and we just sit here breathing, it's boring. We're entertained by all that activity. We believe it's useful. We, you know, it's sincerely supposed to be helping us. It does help in lots of limited ways. And without all of that, then what? Just sitting? And that's boring. It doesn't, doesn't feel dramatic and juicy and powerful and stuff a lot of the time. And when we're, when we're not so entertained or not feeling so empowered, you know, feeling so confident, then um, we tend to kind of just not be engaged in that. It doesn't seem attractive. It doesn't seem loud or bright or something enough, substantial maybe enough. I don't know if you can relate to this, but these are some of the things that stop us from doing the simple thing of just be here. What we discover is that other than be here with whatever is going on, the instruction, what we're trying to do, we add these fix-it strategies. And another name for them is, in more classic terminology, the hindrances. What stops us from being able to just be here, just be present, be calm, be still, be open, be friendly? Are these strategies that the mind keeps doing? I don't like this, therefore, and then off we go. When we don't like something, we then blame it or criticize it or feel embarrassed about it or whatever it is. Or I want this other thing. And then we, as soon as it, you know, we, we don't catch ourselves realizing we're wanting something, off we go, strategizing how to get it, scheming. I mean, how many times a day do you scheme getting some, I think I'll just wait till such and such and then I'll go and get such and such. And we just do it all the time. And then, the, I mean, just to remind some of you don't know these, but a lot of you know these, the, the, um, there are five of these particular behaviors that we manifest that get in the way of being simply able to be calm and present. Um, those are the first and biggest two, wanting something and aversion to things, resistance. Um, is that feeling of squirminess and agitation. 
that can be there when we want something and we don't have it, can be there when we're having to be with what we don't want. More likely the second, but both. And we just, we just can't stand it. We just think we can't tolerate it. We just, anything to get away from it. You know that feeling. And if you're newer to meditation, it's worse usually. It doesn't go away as you get you know, more experience. It just lessens, it's not so heavy. But especially newer meditators, and if you're used to a lot of activity and stimulus and moving your body a lot, you just think, oh, it feels like torture to have to stay still. When you practice in the Goenka tradition, anybody here is practicing the Goenka condition, after three days in a retreat there, you have to sit completely stock still, no moving the eyes or hands or legs for an hour, three times a day, every day. When you're new to this, it's just, you just think you're going to go through the roof, you know. It's really what's called, that's called restlessness or agitation. I call it squirminess. And it's got an opposite, uh, another state that we experience, which is that feeling of just like, Dull, dull, ugh, ugh, slogging through the mud, can't see clearly, heavy, dull mind, drifting, slogging, sloth and torpor. And yet another one is, um, is just that we don't really believe in it, is doubt. I've already described it. We don't, we don't do this so easily because we don't trust it. We doubt that it actually will work. Really? Just do nothing and sit there? That's enough? Just show up? That's it? Unbelievable. Surely I've got to then do something about something. When we can not get lost in any of those or any combination of those, when we can follow the instructions that the Buddha gave that we're trying to share with you, and we can just be simply here, tenderly, patiently, with interest, with openness, letting whatever's here be here, when we can, in those moments that we can. This is how it's helpful. We discover, first of all, that actually we can stand it. We don't think we can stand it. We don't think I can be here with grief. Yeah, and I talked a lot about that last night, how we just get afraid of these negative states. We're afraid that we're going to drown in them. We think they're going to somehow, we won't survive it. We're really deeply afraid of imp discomfort, of, of pain, of emotional pain, of sadness, whatever it is, of being with ourselves as angry. Anything but face the fact that I'm angry, you know, that I'm irritated that I'm unworthy, that I'm not loved, that I've been betrayed. Horrible. It's counterintuitive to our basic evolutionary strategies. Counterintuitive, it's radical. But when we do it, we discover it's not anything like as bad as we thought it was going to be. It's, it is doable. I can stay here and it feel it. The worst thing, I don't know who said this, somebody said this, the worst thing a negative emotion can do to you is make you feel it. <laughs> we just don't think that that's going to be a manageable. It becomes manageable. What's not manageable is when we turn it into this monstrous drama because we keep on focusing on it. And then we have to explain it, and then we have to justify it, and then we predict, and then we just go rolling around in, and that is intolerable, that is exhausting, that's horrible and overwhelming. But when we don't do that, and we just say, how do I feel with frustration? Oh, frustration feels like this. Yes, I can allow frustration here. Frustration feels like this kind of like tight thing here, and I feel sort of stuck with frustration. I'm interested in it. I can allow it to be known. I can make space for this experience. Guess what? It's just frustration. It's just a bunch of stuck feeling and tight feeling. And it then pops into anger. And all of a sudden, it blames that person who's frustrating me. And then it's just frustration again. And then it's tiredness. By staying and being with it, we see its dance. We don't see the story and the players and, and get into the, all of the drama that we make around it. We just stay and hold that feeling. 
the feeling itself is not such a big deal. It's all the rest of it that makes it so huge. We don't do all the rest of it. That's not meditation instruction. That's where we get so confused. Just simply feel what's to be felt. And we discover we can. We can tolerate unbelievable feelings, but we never thought we could. Another thing that happens as we do it in the moments that we can, and gradually we can do it more and more easily, all kinds of things become obvious to us. We get these realizations. We don't figure it out, but we begin to see more deeply what's really going on. And we see, for instance, that I'll take myself as an example in my year of trying. I could see this little kid in me that give me a problem and I get the bit between my teeth and I will jolly well solve it. You know, that's my nature from very young. And it's kind of cute. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm going to do it some way or another way. Okay, that's the way that this one does it. I see that that's, that was a strategy I learned very young. Things weren't okay very, you know, lots of things weren't very nice when I was a little girl. And so I was going to jolly well make things good. I was going to do my hula hoop 366 times before I let it fall down, and then I would be okay. And this was this little uppity child, you know, it's the way she did it. She's still doing it, and I could see this. And then somehow it's like, when we can allow it in, it's like we can allow ourselves to be these little humans that we are. We're all doing it the best way we can. Hafiz, that Persian mystical poet, says we're all trudging along with as much courage and dignity and style as we possibly can. And we are in all the various ways, and some of them are pretty peculiar ways that we're trying to be okay, but we're just trying the best we can. We're doing the best we can. Sylvia Borstein has this little phrase that somebody said to her in a, one of her Wednesday groups that she taught for many years. Uh, this it was a woman who said, you know when we walk down the street and somebody meets us and says, you know, how are you doing? The only real answer should be, couldn't be better. Because if I could, I would. <laughs> when we see that, when we look closely at the stuff that we don't want to see about ourselves, especially the stuff we don't want to accept about ourselves, where we're not so perfect, we see, you know, if I knew more, if I had more information or more skill or more energy, I wasn't so exhausted, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it that way. But I didn't, and I didn't know better, so I did it that way. I didn't know how else to do it. I'm doing the best I can here. This is the beginning of, a, of forgiving instead of the blaming, instead of the controlling, wanting it to be other. It's the feeling of like, well, this is how it is, actually. It's that opening of the heart. It's way kinder. We say, be kind. Those are just words. How do you be kind? How you be kind is you let it in, whatever it is. Being kind is letting it in. It's not kind to, to not let it in and to fix and to blame, to control and manipulate. It's actually not kind. It's not respectful. It's very dominating. And it's futile because it often doesn't work anyway. It's ridiculous and it's exhausting. And this is the state we're in. It's <laughs> sad. It's kind of sweet because we're trying hard, but it's poignant. And we get to see this. And then we get to like forgive ourselves, or at least allow ourselves to be, to be good and trying. And then we start seeing if we're able to keep being with our experience, whatever it may be, pleasant or unpleasant, difficult, whatever it is, emotional. Often there's the story, there's the th way we think about the story, the players, the situation. Underneath that is how we're feeling, is our emotional world. Feel those feelings. We don't want to, so we go to the thoughts and we go to the stories and the players. Come back here, come inside, feel how it feels. Make space for that. Don't be scared. Let yourself feel it. And then we start seeing the deeper uh, truths of it, which are the liberating truths. We get to see that when I feel this feeling of frustration and I stay and allow it, and I don't blame myself, and I don't hate it, and I don't try and make it go away, I just allow it to be here, I see that actually it isn't a permanent thing. I see that it actually comes in a wave, and then it subsides that it comes and that it goes. I don't do anything. 
I'm just doing what they tell me. I'm sitting here being with my experience. And then it's revealing itself to me. It isn't as solid as I thought it was. It isn't actually my reality. It's a passing mood. That's way less intimidating. And I see that the reason it's there is because this situation caused this kind of response in this kind of personality because of this whole life of habitual behavior. In fact, this thing isn't so much a thing as a momentary relationship caused by that, which causes that, which causes that. We, those of you who've done any amount of practice have had your own glimpses into we call this conditionality. When we're not trained, when we haven't done meditation, in the old strategy, a thing is a thing. It's good or it's bad. We want it or we don't. But when we look really closely, as we are steadying our gaze and able to stay with experiences, we see things aren't what at, at all what we thought they were. They actually aren't things. They're simply a moment of There aren't words for this. The English language is not good for the inside experience. Pali is a much better language, and I don't speak Pali, so I'll try with English. <laughs> it's a moment of experience that's only there because of the previous moments of experience that's now going to become a different one. There isn't anything actually as solid as I thought at all, even my frustration, let's say. It's not that I am frustrated, like that's a box, a statement. It's there's a moment of this bunch of feelings that's coming and shifting and changing, and then something else is different, and then I don't feel like that anymore. Where is the thing? Then when we start to see this, we start to see that the way we thought the world was isn't, we realize that it's my perception that's been blind all along. I have been seeing in a certain way. I've been perceiving things to be the ways that they're not. I've been perceiving myself to be whatever it is, whatever way you've been defining yourself. And it's not quite the way that I realized. It's peculiar, it's unsettling, but it's also liberating. We begin to realize that we don't know a t half of what's going on. It's way more mysterious. And one of our old strategies is to figure it all out and then know about it, and then we can describe it, and then it's all, when it's knowable, then somehow we're comfortable. But it's completely unknowable, because what we thought we knew isn't anyway, and then it changes in a flash. And so it's way more peculiar. And it's way more mysterious. And we're made way less in charge. And way, way, we understand much less. But the old strategy is to try and figure it all out and know it all. <coughs> That's radical. It's sort of like the carpet just keeps getting pulled out from underneath. And we think, well, OK, now I've got it. Now I understand what they mean by that. Good. Whew. And then that's not there. Another thing we notice, which is almost more disconcerting, is that what we think we're perceiving, we think that that's actually, even if it's changing rapidly, which we begin to realize, what we begin to realize is that um, how it appears is as much about my perception of it as about it. And then we start thinking, am I actually making it all up? How much is, is my responsibility in my world? in my life? How much of it is my life, and I'm just innocent bystander? We begin to discover that the way things appear are as much about me as they are about them. So you wake up on a, on a good day, good hair day, and you've had a good sleep, and everything's beautiful. And you, you notice pretty things, and people seem to be content. And you woke up on a bad hair day, and it sucks, you know, and everybody's grouchy, and you just notice all the garbage. and. Is there garbage that day? And was it not there the day before? Or is, it, is that your perception?
all of these seeings or understandings or what we start noticing when we do this simple practice that we're always encouraging you and cheering you on to do less, <laughs> not that strategy, just be here, allow, open, just this, Rodney's lovely little just this. As we are able to do that, as we trust it more, as we become more familiar, as we over and over release the other, because we keep doing the other and then we can release it. We do it, we realize we've done it, and we can release it. As that continues, the result, as you all know, which is why we come back to retreats, we forget why we come back to retreats, but the result is that we feel less oppressed. We feel less the burden of having to figure it out, of having to do it right, of having to fix it, of having to fix ourselves. We're able to be more innocent. We're able to be more like children. We're able to allow the fact that we are learning, we are part of a whole play of life, contributing what we can. We aren't in charge here. And we, we are able to forgive and allow ourselves to stumble along. We soften. We soften this grown-up stance of the knower and doing it good and right. And we become more innocent. We, it's like we become younger. And it feels more, well, you have to see how it feels more for you. I can't tell you how it feels for you. For me, I, probably the biggest word in this is relief. And this particular year, because I've been able to tolerate and had to tolerate stuff that I never had to tolerate before, difficult, sad, really unpleasant things, I feel more, um, I just feel there's more space. I said that at the very beginning of the retreat. The emphasis uh, Rodney was offering at the beginning is this emphasis of stillness. And for me, the emphasis in my experience of it has been space, open. I feel like I have a bigger stomach. I can swallow much more stuff than I ever could swallow before. I can allow it in, and I'm still okay. I'm still here. And life is, life is tough sometimes, and that's not wrong. <coughs> if I hadn't the practice that I have in dealing with this year, I would have been so exhausted and so miserable. I would have broken down. But I was able to not add hindrances on top of unpleasantness. I was able to not blame myself for being frustrated or for losing patience or for over trying to fix or overcompensating or whatever. I was able to not add blame to the situation of these other people. In other words, to be able to feel the feelings of difficulty is compassion. To open to, to these feelings and be there and allow them in. Compassion just means feel with. I could feel with these people and feel with myself without fixing, without regretting. It's peaceful. There isn't the struggle. We can, we can have difficulty and beauty, period. We don't need to then add anything. Have to have it, have to not have it. It's peaceful, whether it's up, whether it's down, whether it's sideways. Freedom, the freedom that we're learning and accessing is freedom from struggling. Whatever's happening. So I think the last emphasis I want to give is that if we do our part, which is very simple, it's radical, yes, and it therefore difficult, but it's simple, then the Dharma does the rest. It's the truth that heals us. We just need to open to what's happening. Then we see, then we understand, then we care. We don't have to do that. It's not an effort. The effort is simply to not do the other strategy and simply come
come here and to keep asking, what's happening? And how am I with what's happening? And how am I with what's happening? Just keep asking. So for instance, Hafiz, who's my favorite poet, some of you know this, has a little poem. Hafiz was a sort of contemporary of Rumi's, a little bit earlier. First, the fish needs to say, something ain't right about this camel ride, and I'm feeling so damn thirsty. It's not, we, it isn't quite right, our strategy. <laughs> we can't really quite fix it. That's good to know. And then Rumi, I'll end with Rumi. This is a small part of a longer poem of Rumi's. Keep walking, though there's no place to get to. Don't try to see through the distances. That's not for human beings. Move within, but don't move the way fear makes you move. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. to sit quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.